You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 1 Kings chapter 16 this morning. I won't ask this morning, but I, I hope that many of you folks, especially if you're on our loop and part of our church, that you take opportunity during the week to at least look at the text that we're at, what we're talking about, be familiar with the scriptures. I think especially on a day like today, it's important because we're just going to mention chapter 16, but it really does set us up for the rest of the message of chapter 17 and all that follows there. We've been talking about the northern tribe of Israel, who, who was ruled by Jeroboam. And Jeroboam had a, a wonderful nickname that I'm sure he was proud of. He was the man that caused Israel to sin. Every time you find his name, it is associated with the fact that his actions and his behavior were responsible for the children of Israel as a nation turning away from God. I was thinking about that this week, about his name and what he was known for. And I just wonder sometimes about our own names and what we're known for. If in our hearts and our lives and our actions, our attitudes, the way we live this faith out, if we are responsible for causing others to sin, causing others to think poorly of our faith, causing others to think that Christianity is a joke, like Jeroboam, or through our lives, it's that people desire truth, they desire life, they desire what we have. The Bible has much to say about those things. But for Jeroboam, he was the one that caused Israel to sin. And so we come to chapter 16, and it's a strange chapter in that it starts telling us about this procession of kings, and, and every king is bad. And you know about the northern kingdom, every king was bad, but it seems in this chapter it goes from bad to worse. Every one of them. This guy's killed, he, there's a conspiracy against him. This guy's drunk and someone stabs him. This guy burns the house down upon him. And over and over again, the phrase comes up that they walked after the ways of Jeroboam. They sinned, they were evil, they were wicked. We are talking about very, very dark days. And we see this pattern. They do evil, they're punished. And it just repeats itself over and over again. And I have to say, that is the nature of evil. It's boring. You can sin with flair, but you cannot sin with freshness. It's been done. It happens over and over again. And evil is just like, oh, evil again. And that's what Israel has been experiencing over and over again. And it produces the same thing. Evil always produces destruction. It destroys everything it touches. And no one's the exception. It produces emptiness. Emptiness. And this was the state of Israel at this point. And just to make the point, 1 Kings chapter 16, look if you would at verse number 25 this morning before we get to our text. Because we've gone through this this list of kings, and we come to Amri, verse 25, and here's what it says about him. He wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. 
So it's bad. Everyone's bad. And we get to Amri, and it's like, oh, my goodness, he's worse than everyone we just talked about. And just when you think it can't get any worse than this, welcome Ahab. And it does. Look with me, if you would, now at verse number 29. Then in the 30th and 8th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Amri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Amri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 20 and 2 years. And Ahab, the son of Amri, Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that went before him. So, all bad, his dad is worse than anyone, and this guy comes along, and he does worse than all of them before him. This is Ahab. Verse 31, And it came to pass, as it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Athbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. And in his days did Hiel the Bethlehite build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. Here's the nation of Israel. And just when they think it can't get any worse, right? Jeroboam, bad enough. King after king, bad enough. Amre, terrible. He was worse than all of them. And Ahab comes, and Jehoshaphat, or, or Jeroboam, doesn't look so bad after all now. It's not so bad, because we have Jezebel. She is the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Zidonians, and she brings Baal worship into the land of Israel. And then there's, this is a veiled little passage here in, in verse number 34, and it really tells you about the mindset of Israel. It talks about Jericho there and how Ahab now commissions Jericho to be fortified again. And the problem with that is that Joshua said, anyone who does this, they will be cursed. As they build the foundation, their firstborn will die. As they finish the gates, their, their youngest would die. And that's exactly what happens. There's this idea that the word of God doesn't matter. This is a terrible time in the life of Israel. Everything is Baal. It is dark. It is bleak. It is black. It is hopeless. And those who know Yahweh, this is tragic for them. And so we read chapter 16, and it leaves us thinking, this is bad, really bad. Now, just so that you know, there is no chapter break between chapter 16 and chapter 17. When, when they're reading this text and this passage, it's not like, okay, it's bad, next let's move on. It just goes from Ahab, and all of a sudden we get to chapter 17, verse 1, and out of nowhere, here's what we find. And Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And so here we have this situation. It's terrible. It's dark. It's tragic. And out of nowhere, Elijah shows up. 
and we know nothing about him. Nothing. We don't know if he likes pina coladas or getting caught in the rain. Oh, oh, oh. you just dated yourself, everyone who laughed at that. We don't know about his background. We don't know what he likes, games that he plays. We don't know his favorite movie or books that he reads. We don't know anything about his family, his upbringing, his social status. We don't know about his education. We know none of that. And here's a dark, dismal time in Israel's life. Everything is bale. Everything is bad. Everything is wicked. Everything's evil. And out of nowhere comes Elijah. And we know nothing about him. And apparently, we don't need to. The narrator never considers it important. What's important is that Elijah does show up. And by the way, his name means, my God is Yahweh. Just the name, my God is Yahweh. In the midst of evil, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, In the midst of all of it, out of nowhere, Elijah shows up and he says, Hey, my God is Yahweh. And he has a message. It's the message that is important and not the man. The message is of the utmost importance. It is not in our resumes, but in our Redeemer. And so Elijah shows up. And there's a great truth here. Because it's never in the man. It's always in the message. The message is everything. The message of redemption is everything. The message of Christ is everything. The message that we preach, this gospel, is everything. And we need to keep that in our minds this morning. I love what Count Zinzendorf said. He said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. You say, that's harsh. That is not harsh. That is the reality of this life. I, I wonder this morning, and there will be someone here, I know you'll ruin this illustration for me, but, but is there someone here this morning that you know the name of your great, 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 great grandfather? Okay, yeah, I knew this would happen. You too, all right? Okay, it's probably your name. Is it Dave or no? Okay, I don't need to know any more detail. That's enough. Alberta, do you know? Why do you know? Yeah, cheater. But you do that, and you know, and so you go all the way back. But for most of us, right, you don't know. I don't know. You don't know what they did, what they looked like, who they were. Can I tell you some sad news? Unless Alberta and Dave are related to you, four generations from now, your great, 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 great grandchildren will have no clue of who you are, nor will they care. Isn't that sick? Doesn't that make you sick? That, that you, who cares? Can I tell you something, though? 4,000 generations from now, the gospel of Jesus Christ will matter. It will matter because it saves people. It changes people. It reconciles us back to God. And so we find Elijah, and the truth is, ah, it doesn't matter about his resume. His message matters. And this morning, our message matters. It just matters. 
Look what he says in chapter 17, verse number 1. He comes to this wicked time in Israel's history, these dark days, and he says in verse number 1, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. This is a bold statement. And if you know the story, you know it's true. James tells us, Elijah prays and it doesn't rain. It's like, wow, how magical. How lucky is that? And the truth is, it's not magical, nor is it lucky. Elijah is a man of God, and the truth is, what he says here is a covenant curse on God's people that God promised to do if they turn their backs from him. Deuteronomy 11, verse 16, this is what God says to his people when they enter into a covenant with him. Take heed to yourselves, that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain, that the land yield not her fruit, unless ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord God giveth you. This was a covenant curse. And Elijah could come and say this because he knew the word of God, and he said, listen, no more rain, not a lucky guess. This was an act of judgment against Israel. It was a covenant curse. And then there was a calling out of Baal. If you don't know, Baal is the storm god. Baal is the fertility god. Baal's the god who causes rain. That's why he's worshipped. We need rain. We need the crop to grow. We need the water. And so Baal, the fertility god, Elijah says, guess what? The faucet's getting shut off. No more rain. And Baal's fame will shrivel as the ground, the parched ground, begins to crack and open wide. No rain is a sign of judgment. But look at verse number 2. And the word of the Lord came unto him, Elijah, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith. And so God says to Elijah, Go talk to Ahab, tell him no more rain, but then I want you to disappear. And it's interesting here. He doesn't just disappear because he's playing hide-and-seek with the king. The idea is that he is the messenger of God's word, and God says, okay, Elijah, you've given the word, now leave. And this, too, is a sign of judgment. When God withdraws his word from a people or from a nation, it's trouble. It's famine. Amos chapter 8, verse 11 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. And so, Elijah comes on the scene. No rain, no word. It's judgment. Just that you know. Oh, that's God. Again, judgment, judgment, judgment. No, it is God in his love and his grace once again calling his covenant people home because he knows anything outside of him is empty, shallow, meaningless. It will never satisfy. And so he brings judgment, he brings chastisement, he brings discipline, so we open our eyes and say, God, this is a dead-end street. You're right I'm wrong, I'm turning to you, and being restored into fellowship. It's a beautiful thing. That's what parents are supposed to do. 
That's what churches are supposed to do. What government's supposed to do. And so he says, judgment on my people. Verse 3, B, now he goes to the brook that's by Jordan. Verse 4, and it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. And he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. Now, ravens, clean or unclean animal? Unclean. They're dirty birds. They're di- and if you, like, oh, a raven, they're the same family as crows. They're not crows, but they're the same family. Do you know what crows eat in Chatham? Eh, yeah, what don't they eat in Chatham? Garbage, disgusting, roadkill. That's crows. And so God says to Elijah, I got good news for you. I've commanded the ravens to feed you. And I'm not sure what it was, but you better cook it for a long, long time. You know, ah, pancakes and bacon this morning, cheeseburger and a bun in the evening. Ah, just cook it really well, Elijah. The ravens will feed you. Look at verse 7. It came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. And, and we won't talk about it today, but I think it's fascinating. The way that God provides for his people, uh, ravens, how dependable, and even less dependable, is a widow woman in the Iron Age who's scratching out a living. And yet God uses them to sustain his prophet. We'll talk about that probably next week, but not this week. I'm going to stop here. No, don't get excited. I didn't say I was going to stop preaching. I said, yes, time change. Awesome. I'm going to stop here. I'm I'm going to make only one point. Just one point. I have two points. I will not make the second point. I will not get to the second point. I'm going to make one point. And in this story, we're going to take a little bit of twist. Because we hear, is there anybody here this morning that this is the first time you ever heard the story of Elijah and the ravens and the widow of Zarephath? Anybody for the first time? Okay, a few people. Okay, good. Good. It's a great story. Read it over and over again. But for most of us, we've heard this story since Sunday school. Right? The flannel graph, right? You put the little ravens up there all flocking around. And Elijah by the brook. We've seen it. And I think so often our mind goes to one mindset as we make application for this text. And I just want to approach it from a different angle this morning. And I do think it's a biblical angle, so I'm not just making stuff up. All right? But here's the point. This is the only point. I want you to see this morning the apparent success of evil. The apparent success of evil. Chapter 16, darkness. If you're a believer, you don't want to be in Israel living here during this time. And I think what we forget is this. We hear about Elijah. Oh, God's man. He's a prophet. And we think, oh, yeah, the widow, too. She's great. And what we fail to realize is that these were not the only believers of Yahweh during this time. There were other believers in the northern kingdom of Israel. Look, if you would, 
at 1 Kings 18, verse 13. Or look at the wall if you're too lazy to open your Bible. This is Obadiah speaking. He has met Elijah. And here's what he says. Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? Which again, gives you insight to what's happening here. Not only are they worshiping Baal, but God's people, his prophets, are being slaughtered. Jezebel is wicked. And, and she has got an axe to grind, literally, with God's people. And Obadiah says, didn't you hear what I did? When she's killing all these guys, what did you do? Well, I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So Obadiah is telling Elijah, in Israel right now, didn't you hear? As she's killing guys, I rescued a hundred of them, and I've been feeding them. So there's a hundred at least. 1 Kings 19, 18. This is what God says to Elijah. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. So here's 7,000. And so I want you to think with me this morning. Here is a nation that is dark, wicked, and evil. Um, and they have seen bad ruler after bad ruler. And, and, and when I say they have seen, I'm talking now about God's people there in the midst of it. And when I say bad ruler, I'm not talking about, well, this is a ruler that just likes to play dress up wherever he goes. Or he's incessantly tweeting. You should have got the first one before you got the second one. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about godless, evil, slaughtering the innocent kind of rulers. And here, if you were one of the 7,100 that we know of, and Baal worship is everywhere, and they're calling good evil and evil good, prophets are being killed, certainly it'd be like, God, what are you doing? Where are you at? What's happening in our country, in our nation, in our world? I found an amazing quote from, of all people, George Orwell. And listen to what he says. The further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those that speak it. That was Orwell. Long time ago. And here's a nation where the people who are speaking the truth are being slaughtered and hiding. It is a dark, evil time. And I'm sure the cry of their hearts, God, where are you? What's happening? Have you left us alone? Now, don't we experience this? I don't have to convince you this morning there's evil in the world. 17 kids dead going to school of all places. You know what that is? It's evil. Quit with the politics. It's evil. Just evil. There's not a day that goes by that I look at the news and I think, what in the world has happened to our world? There's a couple out in the, I think it's the west coast of the United States. Their foster parents had about 12 kids, torturing kids, locking them up in their basement for years. 
evil. Just last week, they showed a picture of a woman in Indonesia and radical Islam publicly beating her in places where it's okay to burn folks alive and lop off their heads and torture them because they will not submit to Allah. It's evil. Evil. We know it. We see it. We live in a world today where we call evil good and good evil. And now, if you have a voice for the most innocent among us, those who have no voice, and you say it's a life and protect it, now our government will punish you by withholding funds because you believe that life is valuable. That is evil. It's evil. And if you really think about it, really think about it, it's enough to infuriate you. It's enough to um, depress you. It's enough to sicken us where we find ourselves today in the midst of evil. It's exasperating. I think Corey Tamboon, she, she said it so right when she said, look to the world and be depressed. Look to yourself and be distressed. Look to Jesus and find rest. Right? But you know what I'm talking about. And let me say something else about evil. Because we're all well aware of the evil out there. But the line of good and evil runs right down the center of every human heart. Every human heart. We can dress up and look pretty and bring our Bibles and come to church, but in our hearts, there is lust and greed and anger and bitterness and filthiness and vileness. It's there, and it runs right down the center. Did you ever wonder why, how it could be that um, regular villagers outside concentration camps could let a concentra- concentration camp continue and never say a word about it? Did you ever think how German soldiers could actually take people, human beings, to a gas chamber and look at the scratches on the wall as they were dying and be okay with that? I would never do that. Can I tell you, my friend, I'm sure they would say they would never do it either. But the truth is, you don't know what you would do put in any situation because our hearts are evil. They're evil. And we make excuses for everything. And so, this morning... We can lament the evil out there, and it's out there. But we ought to be lamenting the evil in here, because it's in here as well. And yet, in Israel, Elijah's sudden appearance in the midst of great evil reminds us that we need not despair. I know you're thinking, this message stinks. This is all bad. This is Baal. We're in chapter 16. No, I know. We might be in chapter 16. But the sudden appearance of Elijah, my God is Yahweh, gives us great hope this morning. And it does it for two reasons. Number one, when Elijah shows up, and he shows up out of nowhere, it reminds the people that the God of heaven knows who they are, where they are, and what's happening in their lives. And this morning, the God of heaven knows who you are, where you are, the nation we're at, and what's happening this morning in all of our lives. 
He does see, he does know, he does care, and our God is at work, whether we see it or not. Look at Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Revelation 2, we'll start at verse number 12, but I want you to know something. If you've never read Revelation before, if it's that book that scares you, right, stay away from that book, you're safe in the first three chapters, three, four, and five, after it gets really confusing. But the first ones are, you're safe. And Jesus writes a letter to the seven churches, and every time he writes a letter, as he begins, he gives a description of himself before he ever says anything to them. And the idea is that as he describes himself, that description of Christ brings great comfort and hope to his people. And he's talking to Pergamus. Pergamus, Pergamus was a city that, that they gave themselves to the imperial cult, which meant as a city, they worshipped Caesar as God. He was a god. And if you did not worship Caesar as God in that city, um, you weren't patriotic. You weren't doing your civil duties there. It meant being a good citizen. That's why they start calling Christians atheists. Literally, Christians were atheists because they didn't believe in all the gods and not Caesar as a god. They wouldn't just describe Christians during that time as being haters of the human race. They hated them for their exclusivism and their intolerance of the gods. And so here is a city that's suffering. Look what Jesus says now in verse number 12. And to the angel uh, of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. Sharp, sharp sword, two edges. This is the idea of Roman justice. The symbol was a sharp sword with two edges. It meant that they would decide they would be just. And Jesus Christ says, I want you to know something. I am the God of heaven. I am the exalted Savior. I will bring true judgment to your situation. It's not the Roman officials. It's not the government. And here's what he says now. This is who I am. And this is what I know. I know thy works and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwells. And Christ says, hey, I know the pagan world you live in. I see it. I know you've been faithful, and I know that you're enduring persecution. And I know that where you're at, it's known as Satan's dwelling place. It's bad. It's evil. It's dark. You're there. I know that. And look what he says in verse number 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. Out of the churches, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, save he that receiveth it. And Jesus says, I know where you're at, I know what's going on, and I want to encourage you now to overcome. Don't stop, don't quit. Don't be weary. I know all about it. But I promise you, if you finish this race, I have a reward for you. He talks about hidden manna, right? That's heaven's food. That's reward. And then he talks about a white stone, which could mean one of two things. A white stone was given for acquittal in a court case. You were found innocent. You were given a white stone. Or if you won a game, like an Olympic game, you were given a white stone, and it would get you a pass into a great feast somewhere, like a VIP pass. And Jesus says, listen, Don't quit. There is 
a reward coming for you. Too many believers see evil, see darkness, see hard times, and they're done. Oh, the world's terrible, the world's bad. I just want to leave this place. And Jesus says, no, continue. I know, I see, I know all about it. Finish the race. Jesus knows what we face. And number two, this sudden appearance by Elijah, my God is Yahweh, reminds us that God has already prepared a counter-movement to evil. Can I tell you something about the evil of this world? God has already established a counter-movement. Do you know when he established it? Before the world began. Because Christ was slain as a lamb before the foundation of the world. And evil has been dealt with, and it will eventually be dealt with. And on the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ paid the price for sin, death, and the grave, and he crushed it beneath his feet, and there is coming a day when it will be done. So God has already started his counter-movement to evil. He's done it through the person of Jesus Christ. And this reminds us that God can raise up ordinary men and women for his service out of nowhere. No name, no reputation, no credentials. So, God knows where we're at, and he has countermeasures for evil. Now, let me tell you something this morning. So, who is it that God is going to raise up to counteract evil in this world today? Where's he going to find men and women? maybe have no name, no reputation, we know nothing about. Let me clue you in this morning. He finds them here among his people who are the salt of the earth, who preserve life, who bring goodness and flavor and refreshment. It's you and it's me. And God reminds us this morning that he has raised us up to confront the evil in our world today. We are the answer to that. And you sit in there and think, there's no way it's not me. It is you. Hey, Mom. Listen to me. All the things that happen in our world today, and you can't trace it to one problem, but the breakup of our homes is a real problem. And kids raising themselves is a real problem. And the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. So, you got kids, you got babies, guess what your job is? To pour your life into them. To point them to Christ. To to develop men and women who will love Him and love others and be selfless. You are the counteraction to evil. Your input, your life, you're pouring in. Well, it's so, I mean, no one notices, no one cares, and we make fun of it today. The truth is, we need godly mothers to confront the world that we live in today, and your job is important. And anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. Fathers, it's you today. How in the world are our young men going to grow up and face this world unless they have a man showing them what it means to be a man. It's not caveman nonsense. It's not that. It is servant leadership. 
It is giving of yourself. It is sacrificing our life for the good of others. It's teaching our boys not to be victims and wimps and courageous and men who love Christ and are not ashamed. Teach our daughters to be women. And, and women, our men are different, and it's good. This idea we're all the same is nonsense. I'm going to steal your thunder, Kim. We've been talking. If you're going to post this, I'm sorry. This was, we've had this conversation. How in the world do we live in a world today where the, the man of the year is a woman? It's like what? Women can't even do that right? How does that work? When here's a man who gets to be the woman of the year who's never had a child. I don't want to be a woman. I would never last as a woman. The human race would die if men were women. I can't believe what they go through. And somehow we act like we're the same. We're not the same. They are glorious and precious, and they do things we could never do. They make this world a better place. And to say that we're the same is ridiculous. Our schools aren't going to teach them that. You and I are going to teach them that. And that's the truth. And we cannot be happy going outside of our roles. We're not designed that way. Hey, neighbor, you know how we confront evil? You're the neighbor who loves your neighbors. You're the neighbor who prays for them, who finds out what their needs are. As you take cookies over or a meal when they're struggling and suffering, you are actively involved in kingdom work. You're not just made to sit in in your house and forget about everyone else. We're to confront evil. Christian worker, is there evil in the shop, in the plant, on the floor, in the field? Yeah, there is. What are you doing about it? You're just fitting right in, cruising along, not being honest, hardworking. God has raised us up to be the salt of the earth. And in our brokenness, and in our story of redemption, we can combat evil. Therefore, whatever situation we face, it is not hopeless. Why? Because God knows where we're at. He knows what we're going through. And he has already established countermeasures for evil. And those countermeasures this morning are you and me. God has placed you somewhere to make a difference in this world. And so when it's all said and done, the apparent success of evil at the best is superficial because it will not last. It cannot last. It won't last because there's coming a day when he will split the eastern sky and all things will be made right. All things. We're part of that process. So this morning, in the midst of chapter 16, and that's where we find ourselves, understand that out of nowhere, Elijah shows up. My God is Yahweh. God is reminding his people this morning, I know where you're at. I know all about it. And I have already have countermeasures in play to confront this evil. And you and I are part of that. He has not saved you to sit. He has saved you to be an active force for the kingdom. And that's what we must do.
Elijah is a fascinating story. We must remember this morning, there were 7,100 who were in the midst of a land that was being judged. No rain, no word, and yet they were faithful. Elijah shows up out of nowhere. And this morning, may we remember, our God is Yahweh. Our God is Jehovah. Our God is Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. He knows all about it. And he already has countermeasures. It started a long, long time ago. And we are part of that process. May we leave this place this morning knowing that God has a purpose and plan for you. Wherever he's placed you, be the salt of the earth to combat evil in our own lives and the lives of those around us.